people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. getting smaller. There's no medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. I want you to stop thinking about us, our marriage. Some awful things might happen. As long as you've got this wedding ring on, you've got me. This is Orson Welles speaking. I have 45 seconds to tell you about something I think you'll remember the longest day you live. It's about a man named Scott Carey. A few months ago, he was six feet, two inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. Today, he's two inches tall and you can hold him in the palm of your hand. Now he lives in a world where he must fight for his life, a world where a friendly house cat is a predatory monster. Incredible, because it's almost beyond imagining. Incredible, because every hour he gets smaller and smaller. Incredible, because every moment the terror mounts. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Ms. Emily Intravia. I still exist! Also back in the booth is a man bigger than his name, Mr. John Adam. I uh, bigger than ever. We continue Sci-Fi July with a look at Jack Arnold's The Incredible Shrinking Man. Based on the book by and adapted by Richard Matheson, the film tells the story of Scott Carey, played by Grant Williams, a man who goes through a mysterious fog bank on the ocean, only to find that it's caused his body to inexplicably shrink. We will be spoiling this film as much as it can be spoiled, so if you haven't seen The Incredible Shrinking Man, please do so and come back after you have. So, John, when was the first time you saw this film? And we should say, John actually requested this. He's a Patreon donor, requested, and is now on as a co-host. You can do that, too, if you do the right thing on Patreon. But anyway, when was the first time you saw this, and what did you think? Probably was in one of the many sci-fi science fiction marathons that I've participated over the years. I, I'm a big fan of all, especially older science fiction. And fairly certain that the impression I had at the time was that this is different from kind of the rest of 50s science fiction. If you, if you know the history of science fiction, you know that even, even the best 
at the time, literature had just started to sort of creep into the mainstream, but science fiction cinema, even the best of it, was still B cinema. But I always got the impression that the Jack Arnold, and we may talk about that later, was trying to do something more here. This wasn't just your run-of-the-mill monster movie of your run-of-the-mill, we're going to a strange planet type of movie. They were really trying to hit the mainstream, and I think I sort of picked that up right away, and that's why this movie has sort of stuck with me. And how about you, Emily? So I was trying to remember because I knew I'd seen it as a kid and that it left a really big impression on me. And when I started thinking through, I realized I think what happened is that I was a huge fan of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which came out in 1989. We had it on video really quickly after. I watched it all the time. It was one of those movies that I think turned a switch as far as giving like creative kid a lot of imagination where when I was bored, I would think, okay, if I shrunk down to Honey, I Shrunk the Kid Size Kid, what I do to get from this place to the next place, what would I eat? All of that. And I must have been really into it. And I think my dad is a big sci-fi guy and a big 50 sci-fi guy because that's when he grew up. And he had probably kept saying, "You need, we need to watch Incredible Shrinking Man. And I don't know if we rented it or if it was on cable one night, but I remember sitting down with him and watching it. And for years, it always stayed in my head. As a kid, I obviously, all the, you know, metaphysical, deep stuff went over my head. But the things I remembered about it, it wasn't just the spider and kind of the big sequences. It was things like the relationship he has with Clarice and, you know, one scene with her where, she, where he's taller than her and a scene later where he's shorter than her and how, like, upsetting that is. And that was something I always remember holding on to. So then as an adult, probably about 10 years ago, I decided to revisit it. And was really bowled over by how different a movie it is and how what could have, like John was saying, really have been a very simple, here's a gimmick, let's make the movie, everybody's going to go see it because it's a great premise for a 50 sci-fi movie. But that is actually this really deep study on like what it means to be a man in the 50s. And it's fascinating to me. So it's always been an exciting movie. And I'm really glad this time around that I got to read the book and kind of dive deeper into it because there's so much here. As I mentioned up top, this is a Richard Matheson story, and he co-wrote the screenplay or wrote the original draft, and then it was written again by another writer later. I mean, Matheson is, he's top of the heap kind of sci-fi. He's good. Oh, yeah. He's amazing. And from what I understand, this is one of his first novels, and he was pretty much ready to just give it up until he was writing this. And, like, he wrote it in three months or some really quick amount of time. He wrote I Am Legend before this, if I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken. Double check on that. But I think I Am Legend was before. What? How would we do that? With what tools do you have? I know. Yeah. Do you have some sort of mysterious book that you can look in? If it was the 50s, we'd have to go to the library. Yes, you are correct. I Am Legend 1954. So this was 1956. 56. And he was writing this. I think, like, he was writing this as he was also writing the script or something it was it kind of crazy seems like this was a movie yeah that was sold before the book was done that's what it is he wrote the book he sold it he before he even got it published so it was one of those like the script was in process as the book is finally coming out yeah and just to add to emily's comment about he wrote it in three months that would have been very typical of science fiction literature at the time it was it was a mass-produced genre basically it was there was a lot of quality stuff but in order for any author to survive you would they would have to write a lot write quickly a lot of shorts asimov was a like a prime example of that but i suspect the film industry around science fiction or the b picture industry or whatever probably did the same they probably had their agents scour all these small publisher which is what the 
novel was published for. And they would have, you know, they were pretty much redrafts of everything that was submitted or everything that was accepted or whatever. And I suspect that's how this film probably got bought so quickly because it was primed for a movie. This was a gold medal paperback. And that was like, I don't want to say top of the line, but it was one of those where a lot of authors that I know of really tried to get into gold medal and they weren't able to do it. Like Charles Williford, like his dream was to get gold medal paperback and he never could in his entire career. I don't remember the first time I saw this. I was looking on, you know, Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, and I was saying something about how they didn't do a lot of TV screenings of this, but I could have sworn that I saw this on television. It's got so many indelible images in this. And then even rewatching it again for the show, just to see how they did the camera trickery, the special effects in this movie. Yeah, some of them are a little rough around the edges, but there are some really good shots in here. There are some real shots where I'm just like, are they using forced perspective? Are they masking off half the screen? Like, how are they doing this? I mean, of course, now we live in a world where we've seen hobbits and humans and dwarves all coexist. And a lot of that stuff is due through, you know, forced perspective, which is trick as old as cinema itself. But I'm just like, how are they doing this? How are they making Scott look so small and Louise look so big? And a lot of that too is just really smart uses of props. And especially when it's like, he's got a notebook that's really super big in his hands and he throws it across the room and she picks it up and it's really small it's not subtle, but it sure is effective. One of the things that they talked about in a couple of the different kind of making of extras was how the studio had a really interesting theory that we can't tease this that much. We can't show you behind the scenes pictures that they had a close set because they didn't want publicity pictures getting out because they thought the appeal of the fact that you're just going to watch it and buy it as opposed to, oh, right, I saw how they did that. They had a giant couch and then a smaller couch that they really felt the audience kind of deserved to just experience it. And I think that in general, something really interesting about this movie is that a lot of it was it's a 50s sci-fi movie. It's going to a broad audience, but for it to be even kind of a journeyman director Somewhere along the line, everybody agreed that this was special and this deserved to be what it is, as opposed to let's change the ending, let's, you know, add another love interest, let's do all of these things that would have made it more kind of general audience friendly. They didn't do that. And it's why I think this movie is still really, really fascinating to watch today. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that Jack Arnold would have that kind of clout. He could say no. You will not give it a happy ending because jumping the gun a little bit, that's what the 80s version does, right? A shrinking moment one. Uh, and it, I don't know. It seems, to, it seems to me that he'd only been for Universal at Universal for six years or not even that. What, 40 years? Uh, 52, 57, five years. Uh, and uh, that he could say no. Of course, he'd give him then a bunch of uh, high performing films before that. So maybe I guess that's enough. Uh, but yeah, that's amazing. And I think talking about the way this this is achieved with the props, I think is the biggest one. And I think it, that stands the test of time better than any CGI will ever be. The photo, the ones that they did through photographic tricks, like uh, they talk about shooting part of the scene well lit or maybe even overexposed slightly and then everything else being black and then shooting another scene with the opposite being exposed and everything else black and putting that together i think that probably doesn't age 
as well because you can like they even say this that the edges never actually mesh quite together the movement the movement of the edges blurs uh, makes them appear blurry and you can even tell exactly what was part of one photographic process mm. and what part of the scene is part of the separate photographic process so I, I think those don't necessarily age as well but the i mean my favorite i think shot or just visual is when about midway through the film and suddenly he's he's in a house and everything looks normal and he's going about his day and then it zooms out and it's a dollhouse and just it is such you don't even need an effect to that right like all you need to do is cut of that and cut of a dollhouse and you get it but there is something about the way that scene plays out especially where it falls in the story where it's sort of like no this is the beginning of the turn and i just i love that so much we were talking a little bit about Jack Arnold's clout. Some of that might also have been behind with Albert Zugsmith as the um, the producer of this, who was one of these guys who just – he cranked out so many movies in such a short time. And they're movies that a lot of us have probably seen, things like Sex Kittens Go to College, College Confidential, you know, The Beat Generation – a little film called Touch of Evil. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that one. Not familiar. Yeah, but he was one. He was a guy who was doing was really only active for about 20 years, and he cranked out 30, 40 films. So this guy really was uh, going for it uh, with his career. So he could have also had a little bit of something to do with that. And luckily, this was more him and Arnold and Matheson doing this rather than it being like, yeah, it's a universal picture, but yeah, it doesn't feel like they really let the, the studio heads come in and muck it up. I was surprised to hear that, at least initially, um, Matheson wasn't happy with the ending. And I'm trying to, I'm struggling to understand why, because they're very similar to his book. I mean, the wording might be different. And of course, he doesn't have that science fictional aspect in the book that he actually becomes microscopic, sort of interacts with the world at a subatomic level or whatever it is that he's trying to say. It's, I mean, it's very flaky. It's not real science. So I don't think that matters. And the movie doesn't really go into detail about what happens, but otherwise in spirit, they're very similar. So I'm, I'm struggling to know if it was just a, an offhand, an offhand comment that he, that he might have made and he was taken the bad way. Well, I think he changed his mind. I think at some point in the 80s or 90s, he gave an interview where he said, no, I was a little hard on it. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, they're very similar. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It it's is. Like, and it, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like one goes more spiritual and the other one becomes more scientific. So it could have been that. The famous line, right? To God, there is no zero. That's movie, not book. To book, I think it's something to the effect of to nature, there is no zero or something more scientific. And on one hand... I understand as far as, okay, you're making a movie for a 1950s movie-going audience versus you're writing a book for a 1950s reading audience. And even though the book was not sold as, you know, as, as Chekhov, it was sold as, here's a 50s pulp, look, look, you're going to buy it because of the title and because of the cover. You still, if somebody's going to read 300 pages of a book, they're invested in it where they're going to go on that journey with you. When you're making a movie that you know is going to appeal to perceived audience for this as little boys, right? Gee, maybe it's a little heavy to talk about science, So, but everybody understands God, right? Like this idea that I was on the Contact episode some years ago, right, when we talked about Contact, and how that's a movie that is sort of like dancing around religion being real, religion not, but the idea of if there is something real, or whether that's alien or God, humans are not going to be able to understand it or process it if they don't recognize it. So we call it God, because then at least I understand what people think when they think God. 
even though in this movie, there is no faith, there is no religion, it never comes up, we never see Scott saying anything about why God, why, or anything like that, I feel like the line, to God there is no zero, on one hand, it is distracting today, because if you are watching this and thinking like, wait, 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 suddenly, suddenly it's a religious thing, like, no, 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 it's not, it's not that, it's not that, it's more to the universe, there is no no zero, but it's 1956, so we're just going to say God and hope that everybody gets it. That's how I took it. Well, yeah, obviously they were very much under the code when it came to this. and Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of differences between the book and the novel. And we should say, I really like, I mean, apparently Matheson, when he first adapted this, he tried to use the same structure that the novel has. And I really like the structure of the novel. And I think it, it works, works so well on the page. It works really well on the page. And so with that, like we start with Scott first being exposed to this mysterious cloud that causes him to start to shrink. And then we cut to him navigating this landscape, this really weird landscape, the way that they describe it, where he's going through canyons and all these things. And then, of course, we find out, no, he's actually in his cellar and he's trying to escape this spider. And so it's like going back and forth moving as he gets smaller and smaller and smaller in the the A timeline, and then he's getting smaller and smaller and smaller in the B timeline as well. But we're just cutting back and forth between those, finally, until A collides with the beginning of B. And then we end the book. And I just really appreciate that back and forthness of this and getting to see and they do this a little bit in the the movie too, as far as like setting things up and paying things off later, but we get to see the setup and payoff at different times, which is really fascinating to me, the way that we move through time and the way that Scott is experiencing this and then remembering how he experienced things. And he can even remember back before he started to shrink, but those are almost like flashbacks within the flashbacks. I wonder how you can do that. Because I, I mean, I know there was a script. We didn't see that. I don't know if that script is available anywhere of Matheson's original draft. Would have been really hard to do. It is shocking to me that this movie has never been remade. I mean, yes, there's Incredible Shrinking Woman, but that, to me, it's just it's the same concept, but done so differently in genre and everything else. But how has nobody ever taken this property and said, okay, I have a bigger budget, I have modern CGI, you can do it as a miniseries and really do that. I think you can only do that timeline if you're stretching it out into a multi-episode, because then it also works well in terms of chapters. You can tell it doesn't have to be set in the 50s. You could tell it about, you know, a man today or about a person of color today or a woman of today. I think the actual just this story with just the how is this different if it is to a different type of person is so endless to me. And I'm just shocked that maybe Matheson's estate is very protective of it. I don't know. My hypothesis is that I don't think the film is actually as popular as some other properties. I think science fiction fans or maybe fans of the 50s will know it, but I don't think the property, either the novel or the, the movie, were ever that successful. I don't know. That, that just my, my take on it. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm right or not. I'm just glad that Brett Ratner's version with Eddie Murphy never took off because that was a thing. Of course it was a thing. It wasn't every, like, everything of a Brett Ratner, Eddie Murphy project at some point was a thing. I mean, they kind of ended up doing it, Eddie Murphy, with Dave and that whole thing of, like, the little people inside of the big person. Meet Dave. It's not how he looks on the outside. (laughs) 
It's what's inside that counts. Hello, sir. Hi, are you all right? Contact everyone. Our first verbal encounter. Thank you for your concern. Well, even inner space, right? Yeah, oh, I mean, definitely. And Dante owes up to that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the extras on the DVD is, an inter- is a conversation with Joe Dante. And he said that he, you know, it's the same, the actor that plays the doctor, he, he pulled him to be in inner space as a very, very cheeky little reference that very few people would have gotten. To be honest, I would have much rather had the 80s version be with Eddie Murphy and maybe make a statement on on race rather than the one that the 80s tries to do. As as entertaining as that movie is, it's I'm not sure the message really hits in any way or even as as hard as the original does. The Incredible Shrinking Woman is a one of those movies that you just kind of wish you could go back and like put it back on the rails. Because I think that's a movie that you could see there were some really good ideas, some really interesting things where they wanted to play with, you know, what's it like to be, you know, if a mother shrinks and a very traditional mother at that in 19, what was it, 84. Um, But it's such a just, it's one of those movies that got very loud very quickly. (laughs) And it's Joel Schumacher and it's just everything just keeps getting bigger. And all, all everybody remembers from it is that there's a gorilla. Why is there a gorilla in this movie? I don't remember, but it is. And, and that's what that one turns into. So it's it's fine. I would love to see uh, again a serious remit or readaptation of this, but you could also do another. I'll take another stab at Incredible Shrinking Woman. Why not? So with this one, you had the code to worry about. You had the whole idea of censorship, and so yeah, they really toned down a lot of things. I mean, yes, we have the Wee's and we have Scott, and then like before the end of the first half hour, this movie's about an hour and twenty minutes long. And I didn't even realize just how much of a breakneck pace this movie has. Before we're even done with a half an hour of this film, Scott is at 30 inches tall and he meets a woman that works at the carnival and they pretty much end up having an affair. The affair is almost at the end of the book with the way that the book is structured. But it's really fascinating that it is so early on in here and they don't really say that they're having an affair. It's basically like, we're just hanging out for a little while. It's so nice to be able to talk to somebody who's shorter than me. Oh, this is great. Oh, wait. No, you're taller than I am. Oh, shit. I'm out of here. <laughs> and he like literally runs away. What's the name of the little person that he meets at the carnival? It is. In the book, it's Clarice. Clarice yeah. I'm not sure if it Clarice. is in the movie. She's not played by a little person. Is no, it? It's, it's the no. same thing. Okay. I, no, I but they do this checking. camera trickery where they have Billy Curtis actually walk by in the background and be like, hey, you see a toots or whatever. And he's out of here. And I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting because Billy Curtis is a very famous little person. And just to have him in there and they set him up with a special effect to make him look like he's their size. But, and for folks, you know, you've seen Billy Curtis in a ton of stuff. For me, he's mostly known as Mordecai in High Plains Drifter. He's fucking fantastic in that. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of a missed opportunity to have him actually, because in the book, obviously you don't, I guess the code, there's, there's far less censorship in, in novels, but in the book, she is a little person, right? That's, that's the, that's the the affair that he has. But in the movie, I thought that was a missed opportunity not to use an actor. Although, yeah, I guess that was the state of the cinema in, in the 50s. When they could film them together, they didn't have to worry then about doing the trickery too much. Oh, that that's a fair point. Yes, yes. But today, I think if you were to do it, it would 100% you would cast a little person actor. Why are you casting 
Gary Oldman as a little person. This is really <laughs> oh, strange. Uh, oh, if you ever do a Tiptoes episode, please call oh, me. I've been I'm trying. There. I've been trying to get Matthew on the show forever, but anything I can do to help with that. <laughs> that would be a fantastic episode. But also, there are a lot of things that don't make it from the book into the movie. So Scott, as he gets smaller, he seems to get hornier. And he gets real horny very quickly through the book. And he is just lusting after Lou, his wife, quite often. But the real troublesome thing is when she, Lou, gets a job in the book and she's out of the house and they bring in a babysitter, this 16 year old girl that he just loves peeping on. Wow. I had forgotten all about that. One of the other really big differences that in a way doesn't feel like a difference. And I think this is fascinating. In the book, he's a dad, right? In the book, he has a child. He is. She seems to be about like four, maybe, right? She's, yeah, young enough that she can get around, but also that she's not in school and, and that. And there's something to me so interesting that it makes sense to not include her in the movie because I think, A, then you have to work with a kid. E, then you have this on screen, it would be really sad. I think there is this, then you have to deal with this one more really big loss of a relationship but what I think is so interesting in the book is that, and granted, it's 1950s. He is a, the whole point of this is that he is a very typical, successful, but not wildly successful man of the 1950s. He is married to his wife. She stays at home and does everything for him. He has a daughter who he seems to have basically no relationship with, even before he's shrinking, because he's a dad in the 1950s. What would he do with his daughter? Occasionally, they go out and he puts her in a dress. But the idea that, you know, he's not having a catch with her, he's not bonding with her at any point. So for him to very quickly kind of remove himself from her life, it's not even sad in the book. It's more, it's cold, but it feels really interesting. And again, it's one of those things where I find it so fascinating because it is such, it is a timestamp of what, again, it meant to be a man in the 1950s. And it just makes me wonder again, right, well, so if you did this today, how does that change? If you did this, and again, gender swapped it, how does that change? And again, I agree with the decision because it would not have worked on screen, but it's it's a really strange, just one more element of, reminds me a little bit, and I, this might have come up in one of the articles of it is that Close Encounters of the Third Kind thing, right, where you have a character who's a dad but that becomes something that doesn't define him at all. He can walk away from it in the same way kind of Scott does, at least on the page. That's a big difference between the novel, the carry, Scott carrying the novel and Scott carrying the film is that he's far more unlikable in the novel. Very, very irritable. And even like as soon as he starts shrinking, he becomes very irritable. He just flips out. His pride is exaggerated. I don't know if that was intentional ironically included by Matheson, or that was just, you know, what a realistic man in the 1950s would look like. And I think that's, like you said, Emily, I think that's more accurate than the, I think film version is a bit too nice for the, an actual real person, real man in the 1950s. But I, the one scene that really kind of, I think where he, the sadness really comes across is when he realizes where he's having a conversation with his daughter and he's about either the same height or maybe slightly shorter than his daughter and real that he actually has no connection with her. His entire relationship is one of authority. And that was entirely due to his physical 
the physical difference. He even says something like, one doesn't realize that their authority over their children comes from their size difference. I don't know. I'm, I butchered the phrasing, but something like that. And I don't know. I think that's very poignant. And I think the same thing with the horniness. I don't think that he necessarily gets horny, hornier, although he's portrayed as such. I think it is a sort of a reaction. It's like, I don't know, you find out that you can perform and that you want to do it more just to prove to yourself that, that you, you are not less of a man or whatever. And I think it's sort of a psychological, a psychological reaction. He says this babysitter is not attractive, right? He, he talks in the beginning, especially he, he fantasizes what she might look like. And then he sees her and she's like, I thought she was even, I thought she was like 14 or 15, where she's like pimply and chubby and just not anybody that he would ever have lusted after. But he just, I don't know, she's the only person that, you know, maybe you could, yeah, sure, I could do, I could do that. So yeah, okay, she's hot, totally hot. And he yeah. just convinces himself and it's, it's, and he constantly calls her, calls her a bitch or something like that uh, because she she kind of keeps going to the basement when he wants to be left alone. I think the I think him creeping over her or even imagining her naked or whatever he does. I think in the fifties that would have probably been a little less shocking for an adult man to sort of lust over a sixteen year old. I think so. I mean, I know people that got that used to get married at sixteen around that time, and it wasn't that. Sure. I mean, think of all the songs from the sixty. Right? You're sixteen. You're beautiful in your mind. No, you're sixteen. If you put yourself in the context of the time, that probably wouldn't have shocked the audience. And I think that's what Matheson intended. I like in the novel, especially, I like the parts with his family a lot more than, than sort of the middle part in the basement where he just kind of gets a little bit repetitive. And that's my least favorite part of the novel where he, oh, there's a spider. Oh, now the, the spider's gone. He has to hide again. He has to come out and hide again. I, I think that gets a little repetitive. The beginning of that and the ending of that is really interesting. But the middle part, I think he could have trimmed it a little bit. But then it would have been too short, so he couldn't do that. It's amazing to me how similar Matheson is to Scott Carey. Just Matheson has a brother, and so does Carey. But like Matheson wrote the book in his cellar, I believe it was. Basement, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, okay. Well, he would go down there and basically in that space and look around and say, okay, today if I was this big, how would I get from here to there? We talked a few months ago, we had a whole screwball month around here where we talked about a whole bunch of films, including The Awful Truth, which was remade as Let's Do It Again. And apparently it was Let's Do It Again that was the inspiration for this. The whole scene, Ray Milan puts on a hat and it's way too big. And it's interesting because that whole thing with the hat, it's not a green hat, but it's it's still this bigger hat. And it's basically a sign of him being cuckolded. And so this whole thing of this being the inspiration, because the way, like I said, like sex plays such a big part of this, as does masculinity. I think if they were to remake it today, they might not change anything, but the MRA guys would just be eating this up because it's basically like, look at how women are taking over the world and they're just overpowering us and men are, you know, being made ineffectual because they're a bunch of cucks. There is so much of that in this book of like, Scott not feeling like a man and just becoming less and less of a man, like literally less and less of a man. They are lacing our food with estrogen, which is the girly hormone. Yeah, it's really there. I was mentioning to you that in Stephen King's Dance Macabre, which was his kind of book about horror that he wrote sometime in the early 80s, he has a chapter about the novel Incredible Shrinking Man. And he's, you know, he's writing it as a horror writer writing about other genres. And he's, you know, talking about all these different things that he pulled from it and that. And then he gets to the end of his conversation and he talks about how, oh, but people overthink these things. There are tiresome critics, half-baked Freudians mostly, 
who want to relate all of fantasy and horror fiction back to sex. One explanation for the conclusion of The Shrinking Man, which I heard at a party in the fall of 1978, I'll not mention the name of the woman whose theory this was, but if you read science fiction, you'd know the name. Maybe bears repeating, since we're on this. In symbolic terms, this woman said, spiders represent the vagina. Scott finally kills his nemesis, the Black Widow, the most vaginal of all spiders, by impaling it on a pin, the phallic symbol. Get it? Get it? Thus, this critic went on, after failing at sex with his wife, succeeding at first with the carnival midget Clarice and then losing her, Scott symbolically kills his own sex drive by impaling the spider. This is his last sexual act before escaping the cellar and achieving a wider freedom. All of this was well-meaning bullshit, but bullshit is still bullshit and will never be mistaken for McDonald's secret sauce. I bring it up only to point out that it is the sort of bullshit that a lot of fantasy and horror writers have had to labor under. Dude, really? Like, yes, of course it's that. It's, it's race, yes. 100%. It's very obvious that that's what he's trying to say. I mean, Matheson specifically actually spends time on saying, on commenting on the Black uh, Widow about being killing her mate. Uh, and I mean, it's clearly a symbol of emasculation. Now, if it's specifically he intended it to be a vagina and a penis, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's right about that. I think, I think I, I haven't read that book. I just read that one paragraph just to, 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 and it's, it's fascinating how he throws her under the bus because. And he does like, and meanwhile, he's doing the same thing on like 12 other chapters about books, but yeah. I, I think he's a bit frustrated because as, if you do read criticism, Freudian interpretations are like, assholes everybody has one and it can get tiresome if you're an author and you're constantly being sort of thrown into these oh that's a penis that's a vagina that's a penis that's a vagina so i can see i can except see when it is a penis might, and vagina. <laughs> yeah i think i mean the matheson matheson is explicit about what the black widow represents and i mean is he might as well i mean he's not subtle about the one thing this novel is not is not subtle no he's attacked by a giant pussy like literally and even the the special effect, it, it, I mean, I guess the the mouth of the I mean, that's a tarantula in the movie. It's not a black widow because they couldn't. The black widow was too small to be properly you focused. Can't really train one too well, apparently. I think tarantulas are easier to train. Well, and they're probably hardier. Apparently, a lot of tarantulas died on the making of this movie, which is a little sad. No cat, yes, and celebrity cat, right? That's the cat from Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's award-winning orangey. But if there was one thing I really would go back and change and do my George Lucas edit on, I hate that it's a tarantula. It is so much more effective with it just being a spider that you could normally step on. When it's a tarantula, in real life, most people are afraid of tarantulas. Yeah, but I mean, how common uh, this is? How common are black widows? Uh, my understanding is they're not that common. So in the book, well, I neither think are tarantulas. They're in California. very dangerous, right? Aren't they? They are, poisonous? but they're fairly widespread. In I had a friend who just posted like a picture of a spider and said, "What's this?" And I'm like, "That that's a black widow." And I think he was in Utah. So they are in the U.S. I know there's a fair amount. I think in the South, but there might be some on the West Coast as well. Tarantulas. American Southwest, you do have them. I don't know how far up California they get, but it would be a weird thing to stumble upon a tarantula in your basement. That's so just one thing. That final shot of her mouth, of the tarantula's mouth, as he stabs her, it's, it has a, it's, it's invocative. It's, it's a penis and vagina. We know it. I mean, this whole movie is just so rife for the, like, even the beginning, 
is them, Lou and um, Scott, and they're on this boat. And so you've got water, the symbol of rebirth, yada, yada. But just that this whole like weird struggle of him trying to get her to get him a beer. And the playful, you know, go get it, wench. And they're, you know, all of that. It's it's cute. And it's, and I think that the actress who plays Lou, I think she's actually doing a really good job in a pretty thankless role. Because, and even on the page too, that, that character, I would read this same story from her point of view. I think that would be fascinating because she goes through some, a pretty rough time of this too. And you have to have the right person in there to where... From the beginning, you understand, like, yes, he's the breadwinner, but, you know, she she holds her own in this relationship, and you can still see her fall apart, because, boy, would this be inconvenient if this was your marriage. He's the breadwinner, but he quickly doesn't become the breadwinner. He's quickly laid off from his job because he's so small, but also, his brother can't even, like, keep the finances going with the company. And that's a huge thing, too, is that it's never his money. It Everything he has seems to come from his brother. Oh, yeah. It's like even his brother's boat, because they, they even point that, point that out, where it's like, well, this it's is my boat. the second line boat. of the movie. <laughs> no, it's not. It's your brother's. Yeah, and I think in the novel, there's a line, there's a flashback on a flashback where he sort of hints that the, his brother was always the fa- favorite child among his, in his family or something like that, if I remember it correctly. And I know his brother, yeah, it's like they count on him for money. They are so broke when Scott has to start going in for tests and stuff. They don't get into that in the movie at all. This whole thing of like, yeah, maybe you should sell your story so you can actually get some money and pay for things because they are living hand to mouth through a lot of the the book. This whole thing, too, of as soon as they get back into like the safe domestic space, he's picking on her like crazy. This whole like, did you pick up the right dry cleaning? And then... When she starts talking about him losing weight and getting smaller, it's like, well, you know, how can you blame me with your cooking? And it's like, whoa, dude. In the movie, I took that to be more like playful. They are playful, as, as yes, a, but. As opposed to being like a dig at her or something like that. Well, and then the way that she infantilizes him where she's like, well, I'll fatten you up. I'll give you all this ice cream. You'll be living in a child's paradise. I was like, wow. Neither one of them handle it great. Let's, let's, you know, say that. Uh, I think something the movie does that is actually smart is that there's a lot of detail. And this is, to me, like a good adapter does, is you get rid of all the details. So in the book, they don't live in a house. They they rent an apartment, and then they move to the country and rent a house with the seller. And the movie, it's just, no, this is their house. It has a seller. This is where they live. There's no need to go into any more detail than that. Uh, And again, we don't know how much exactly of the script started as Matheson's and how much was then under the rewrite. But it feels like a for for a first time screenwriter because this was Matheson's first script, right? It's really good. <laughs> yeah, no, he trims the fat really well with this. And speaking of Stephen King, as he starts getting smaller, the only thing I kept thinking of was thinner. And I'm just like, wow, Stephen, you really cripped a lot from Matheson. Which, as you listen to the way that Matheson speaks in his writer's voice. Man, was he an influence on King. It's just amazing. Just that kind of patter and the quick wit and all that. It just feels very, very similar to me. It's like, if you like Stephen King and you're listening to this podcast and haven't read Richard Matheson, you really owe it to yourself to read some Matheson. Realizing, too, my first intro to Matheson was always Twilight Zone, right? Because he wrote so many episodes and it's that same idea of you are telling a really sometimes very scary but almost always very 
intelligent, thought-provoking, challenging story in 22 minutes, and you have maybe two sets to work with and and go for it. And there is this sci-fi as literature is really unfairly looked at, I think, in the literary community, because like John, you were saying, they had to crank these stories out quickly. There was usually not room for character. There was often... It took me years to go back and read sci-fi, because every time I tried... I would always give up because it was either, for me, very boring, or I found so much sci-fi to be really misogynistic. It's So much of it's written by men, and just women never come off well in it, and all of that. And it's one of those genres, I think, you know, that's true of horror as well. You have to sift through a lot of the rough stuff, and then when you find the writers that knew how to do it, and cared about it, and had the talent, and could crank these out, but crank them out really well. It's a really special thing to find. Give a little context on that. So James Gunn, not not the director, someone with the same guy, uh, same name, famous science fictional scholar, called it the called it a ghetto, meaning that it was a very isolated community. So that's why you had sort of science fiction existing independently of the rest of literature. And that also means to a far more inclined to target the specific audience that he, that, that was reading. And that was mostly young boys. So that's why you have a lot of science fiction was surprisingly progressive when it came to race, but not when it came to gender. Uh, so that's because that was who was reading it and that was who was writing it. And it was so, it was so isolated that you just, you know, you'd have Short stories mostly set 300 years in the future, yet women were mostly housewives. You have a few notable exceptions. With very large breasts. They always had very large breasts. Yeah, yeah. So that's, it's not surprising at all. And even that's what Matheson plays with in the, in the story, right? It is the, the, the image of what a typical, a proper family should be. And that all falls apart when the role, when the man is unable to perform his role. And I think the evening, there's a line where he says, I don't want you to work, or maybe it's internal monologue where he says, I don't want my wife to work or something like that. So that was very much what sort of was expected of a typical family in the 50s. Well, and this is that time too. This is 10 years after the war ended. This is still, there are women in the workforce. And that was a major threat. You know, men came back from uh, overseas and they came back to women that were in the workforce. How dare they do this? And it was a necessity for women to do this. And then it was like, once women had that independence, it's like a lot of them didn't want to give it up. Go figure. They still couldn't get credit cards, but you know, that would only take another 30 years, but hey, you know, progress takes time. Talking of symbols, since you talked about, I mean, that's pretty much what all the novel and the, the movies are, symbols of this and that. I mean, there's two things, two components that make up his transformation into, or his shrinking rather. There's the atomic cloud which is glitter on his chest basically and uh and there's the insecticide portion that combines with the radiation i mean the radiation we know what it stands for right that was every science fiction movie had to have some something with radiation it's like a checklist they had to do if they still wanted to call it the sci-fi. insecticide uh, what, what do you think that means i've never been able to kind of crack that is it does it stand for something is it just something cool to throw around or or what And I was surprised, too, that the movie does it, because that's another place where they could have cut it. They could have just opened on, he gets sprinkled, and gee, what was that? I don't know, I'm shrinking now. But instead, they have a moment where it's him relaying a story of, oh, wait a minute, one day I went running, and yeah, I got hit by something. And it's not visual, it's not like he's on a flashback, anything, it's him recounting the story. And I think it's because it was so important that 
it was a come it wasn't one thing it's a combination of two things and the odds of it happening to anyone are so infinitesimal but they happen to him and i think that in itself is because if it's just i don't know that breeze blew by well other people were on boats and they didn't get it but that you add in this oh no there were two man-made things that had to happen to this same person in order to have that effect and that's what i kind of like about it because it is more it's more complicated than it needs to be but it makes it that much more of damn yeah that guy's yeah really unlucky huh well, it's interesting, too, because this is five years before Silent Spring comes out. So this whole idea of like this environmental warning, I mean, I don't know how people were aware or how aware people were at the time in 56, 57, as far as the danger of insecticides and DDT and all these horrible things that were going on, all the waste that was being pumped into our atmosphere. But it's just like, by 62, you know, there's Rachel Carson being like, if we keep doing this, we're fucked. And, you know, here we are. And we all, all listen to her, and now we're in a great place. Exactly. Great place. Live in utopia now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have a credit card. It's all good. They just repeal the EPA. We don't care. It's all right. <laughs> Who needs it, right? We'll all be shrunken. It's great. Real quick, I love Richard Matheson, and I talked a little bit about him. We did an episode on I Am Legend and the Omega Man. But just to tack on to your point, Emily, as far as just the amazing things, like when you think about Twilight Zone, you usually think about episodes that he wrote. I mean, Nightmare 20,000 Feet, Steel, Little Girl Lost. Uh, yeah, so many great things. And then Nick of Time for me is still one of the best ones. Like I love Nightmare 20,000 Feet, but if I'm going to watch one Twilight Zone with Shatner in it, it's going to be Nick of Time just because I love that episode. You know, he wrote men really well. <laughs> he had a really interesting insight into, no offense, some of the flaws of men, which is that that hubris, that sense of comfort and then what happens when that comfort is taken away and again oh this isn't relevant to today's time at all but just how and again it's a really on the nose metaphor but yes works so well because it is so simple and so true how dare you that's (laughs) i'm just a black widow tarantula over here spinning my web and eating cake is that cake? I've never. Yeah, it's she's was that eating cake in the movie? Cake in secret she's in the cake. basement, which was interesting. I was like, oh, are you not allowed to eat that upstairs? I mean, I guess that was where she was doing her like dressmaking, which was probably one of those things where it's like, oh, just get that out of my way. Uh, it's my house. I, I pay for it with my brother's money. You go to the basement and make up your little house dress. And- Good thing those pens were down there, though. Right. Yeah, it's true. But like, oh, gosh, don't leave cake in your basement. It's a terrible idea. And to your point, John, I thought for the longest time it was cheese until he actually says that it's cake because I'm just like, whoa, you know, all right. I mean, if it was me sitting down in my basement, it would have been a block of cheese that big. Just sitting there eating it, gnawing at it. Breaking it off like big old pieces of styrofoam. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was, styrofoam. But I I just assumed it was some kind of like dried bread, you know, bread where it dries and he had to stab at it to get a piece that's what i assumed but i guess cake would probably dry as well if you i mean cake is kind of like bread right it's flour a floury thing yeah let them eat cake well yeah that bread in the book i mean the bread the crackers and i do love how it's like oh yeah and then i put the crackers and the newspaper up here on this uh, refrigerator and blah 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 and then he's struggling to get those throughout so much of the book you know trying to get up there trying to get those crackers 
trying to get that bread. And again, it goes back to that honey, I shrunk the kids thing, which where food is like a big part of it. And there was nothing more exciting as a kid than like, oh my God, imagine if an Oreo is that big. But it's the same like justification I have for like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't vacuum that carefully because what if I get shrunk? I need to find food. As long as there's a crumb somewhere, I'll be okay. It can be that big. You have like your emergency stash, like a little block of cheese. In every corner, there's a little piece of cheese. (laughs) I've learned my lesson. I'm not that careful with my vacuum and my cleaning, so I, I think I'm all set. There's, there's got to be something behind the corners if the ants. But on the same hand, you're probably vacuuming up shrunken people left and right. Eh. He gets to the point where he, and like, I never would have thought of this, and it was very clever that they got around this. The whole thing of like Louise talking at a normal volume, and it's just killing his ears, and just how. You know, his voice is getting smaller, but his ears are getting more sensitive. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I guess that would really work. Like, if you were super small, you could probably hear the scrabbling of, like, the spider legs and stuff. And then if somebody's, you know, if the heat turns on or the water heater or whatever, then it's just like this huge booming noise that's going to scare the shit out of you every single time it goes off. As a loud talker, it makes me feel so bad because it means all those shrunken people around me are just deaf now because of me. That's the, and the other thing, and it's, it's not in the movie, but it's one of my other favorite moments of the book is when he gets, he gets to a certain height and he's complaining to Louise about something and she snaps and she says, stop squeaking at me. And it's all she has to say. And you understand that's the turning point. I think, I think from that point on is when he starts looking at the babysitter and, and going out, find a little person, but you understand why it hurts so much, but ooh, I love that. Yeah, as he gets smaller, he gets angrier and angrier and angrier to the point where he goes out and he buys this big monster truck. It's just really weird. The, the other thing that I also found strange in the novel is the his encounter with a pedophile. Oh, yeah. boy, yeah. I, that seemed to be – I'm not – again, speaking of if everything's a symbol, what is that meant to be a symbol of or a metaphor of? And I'm not quite sure. I think maybe it's – it's meant to represent his vulnerability or his inability to protect himself because he isn't. I mean, he gets bullied by those kids and he can't do anything about it. I mean, that's one thing. But, you know, being sort of in a car with a pedophile who is quite drunk, I mean, it's hard to glean at his attentions, but that seemed to be what he wanted to do. 100%. He really wanted to go back and, you know, give Scott a massage or something. I was just like, oh my God. And it God. takes him so long to catch on. <laughs> like, he's like, the, he's in the car, like, having a whole conversation. He's not realizing that what this man is trying to get out of him. And again, I think it just goes, goes along with the, you've never had to worry about this because you were a six foot one white man who. You know, not that life was, hey, he was a veteran, like, I'm sure he went through hard times, but, you know, he never had to be afraid to walk down the street, which is a whole different experience when you are not six foot one white man. Well, at least he gets, he gets most of the ride home before he he gets out of the car, so that's something. He's got short legs at this point, so it's hard to to walk that distance. I'm 5'1", I can make these jokes, it's okay. I couldn't believe my eyes when I read that part. It seemed just so unexpected. I mean, the novel doesn't pull punches, but that even that seemed to be, whoa. I forget sometimes, like, when I read books written at different times, I forget that, like, right, you could kind of write anything. And again, like you're saying, especially in sci-fi, because you didn't have the same attention to somebody saying, oh, you can't publish this. But you really forget sometimes that, like... Oh, yeah, you can say what you wanted to say in in a novel and get it out there, and you didn't even have to sugarcoat it. It'd be right there on the page. You couldn't do it in film, especially 
when you were at the height of the Hays Code at this point. But I think they also get around a lot of the Hays, which, I mean, that was the whole, I think, interest of the Hays Code is how, in some ways, movies were a lot more sexy and risque because of the Hays Code, because they had to suggest things, so they got around it by making things sound even more dangerous. And there's nothing direct, but I think all of the all of the sexual stuff, and again, we don't have a teenage babysitter, but we do have enough to where once you're of an age watching this movie, I think it's all very clear what's going on. Yeah, he even says at one point, my desperate need for her. And I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I'm puny now. Oh, I mean, he doesn't get a Barbie doll. He does in the book. Right. That was the official divorce when he turns around in his house one day and wakes up and she has given him a doll. He's like, oh, all right. Okay. This is it. I think they include that in the shrinking woman, right? She, there's she interacts with dolls at some yep. point. Yep. Okay. No, not not sexual. Not as sexy. Yeah. yeah. And then he's uh, getting horny for that uh, magazine as he's climbing up to get uh, the crackers. And he's just like, "Oh, look at that magazine!" I'm like, "Are you going to have sex with a magazine, dude? Is that what you're going to do?" I mean, do? I wouldn't judge him at that point. He's been through a lot. He has been through a lot. Yeah. I mean, just think he had like a spider right there. Like, who knows where things could have gone? There had to have been some porn parodies of this movie, right? You know, that's a really good question. I imagine there must have been. Like, oh, I thought you were shorter. No. <laughs> um, you seem, you don't seem quite as tall as usual, though. Are you wearing different shoes? It's probably, just, it's probably just the shoes. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. You would need to actually build stuff, which seems a little bit more work than a lot of adult films. One of the best shows on TV, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what you think, but I'm a big fan of The Boys on Amazon Prime. It's people with superpowers, superheroes are bad, or at least they're very selfish. That's basically the the premise of it. One person's superpower is he can get extremely small, and his kink is to get inside people while he's very small. And that, that show is very explicit. Both, both with violence and sex, and that's so. If you wanted to see that, it's essentially that. I mean, he, you can see him. All right. I, I mean, I was, didn't say I was looking for it, but it's one of the Pedro Almodovar movies. Is it Talk to Her that has a sequence where a character is shrunk and basically like exits into his lover after Kiki? Was that it? I, I kind of gave up on a lot of Almodovar. It takes a lot for me to watch him now. There's that movie from Mika where someone comes out of someone's vagina. I mean, but that's probably more usual than most of what Mika does. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that's, that's just PG stuff. There's a really good Polish film called King Size that I saw quite a few years ago. It was from 88, and it's the whole thing of people come from a world of what they call dwarves, but they're basically all like super tiny people. I imagine kind of going back to the porn thing i imagine that there must have been like a um not a Stuart little what's the uh what, what's the word I'm, gulliver travels gulliver's travels right where they probably had that i mean even in gulliver's travels it's amazing like at one point there's a fire and uh, gulliver whips out his dick and pisses all over the place to put out this fire in the land of lilliput and it's just like after he does that it's like hey thanks for putting out the fire but well, there's also there's a great sequence in Gulliver's Travels. It's been years since I read it, but where you know exactly where I'm going, where when Gulliver is small and he discovers just how gross breasts are when you're tiny and on top of them and all of the ins and outs of them. And I mean, I want to say that the women use him in like a sex toy as well. I think you're right. Yeah. And I mean, that's what 1700s? Like 
we're talking about how people should read more because you'll find it much more interesting in many ways. Matheson's is not that original. I mean, there were people sh- shrinking stories in pulp magazines, sure, Alice in Wonderland shrinking, even. Yeah. shrinking rays type of stuff all the time. He was Doctor Shrinker, and I can't remember like the uh, the Doctor from uh, Bride of Frankenstein. He had all those little people. The uniqueness is specifically the social criticisms, which was fairly novel for science fiction at the time. There was a lot of science fiction was aspiring to be hard science fiction or about amazing thing. That was sort of the direction that John Campbell was trying to take. He was the editor of Astounding, the main magazine at the time, and that was the direction that he was trying to take science fiction. And this human-centered science fiction was new at the time, and that's kind of the novelty of Matheson's work. Not the specific, you know, the specific people shrinking. I mean, that was done many times before. Yeah, because even in most of his work, he doesn't really go into the details of the science. Most He was not a hard science fiction author, no. By the way, I said Dr. Shrinker. I know that's a show from the 70s. It was Dr. Cyclops from 1940 I was trying to think of. Dr. Trinker, one of the classic Sid and Marty Croft uh, shows, so really fucked up. And Billy Barty plays a character in there as well. So, But the main character was um, Jay Robinson, who uh, could really chew up the scenery. We haven't talked too much about Grant Williams, but he's really good. <laughs> I do like him. I was surprised they wanted to get Dan O'Hurley for the role, and I think he passed it up because he had just been Robinson Crusoe. So he's like, yeah, I don't really want to be like the lone guy all the time. This is one of those movies where like that is a hard performance because you're mostly acting by yourself. There are long swatches of no dialogue, of narration, of just him and uh, and lots of props. And I think he's like one of those one of those actors that is interesting and in not being physically interesting. I'll forget what he looks like, and I'll watch a movie and say, I, that guy looks familiar. Do, do I know him? Because he's just, he looks like an everyman. He's, he's handsome. He's, he's a good looking guy, but he's not, doesn't stand out at all. And it's exactly what you need, because you need him to be an everyman and then have to kind of change into a little tiny medieval warrior. And it works. Jock Arnold says in one of the later interviews of the Criterion Extra material that he deserved an Oscar, that he would have been up against Alec Guinness. Uh, in the bridge in the uh, the River Kwai or of the River Kwai, whatever, which is a, a great performance. But I, he definitely deserved more credit than he got for that movie. I mean, he was he did a really really hard job, and I think it adds an extra dimension after the fact. The possibility that he might have been a closeted homosexual in a movie about masculinity. I don't think there was any intention. I don't even think people knew or suspected. Maybe they did. I don't know. But I don't think that would have been a factor in his casting but i knowing that now him being in a movie so quintessentially about masculinity i think definitely adds something to it i was very glad to see um raymond bailey in here as dr silver 
I had not seen him without a hairpiece in a long time because he is mostly known as uh, Mr. Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies, where he wears a piece. And so seeing him in, in this in the buff, as it were, um, I was very glad because I'm like, I know that guy. Where the hell do I know him? And once he started to speak, I was like, oh, OK, Mr. Drysdale, I got gotcha. you. Always good for more baldness representation in cinema. I'm for the short people, you're for the bald people. It's all good. The movie may not have gotten an Oscar, but it did win the first ever Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. So the inaugural. I think the Hugos for fiction were uh, done the year before, I think, or two years before. But they added the Best Dramatic Presentation in this category. So it's, I think that's at least high praise in the science fiction community, if nothing else. I really need to go back because I was doing a whole thing where I was reading – both the nominees and the winners of the Hugos for a few years. And I stopped at one point. I really need to get back to that and do That's that. That's a good project. I should do that. Not that I have all the time in the world, but that was especially good. I was like laid off for a summer and I was just like, oh, hell, why not make this a project? It would have been a good pandemic project had I not had a full-time job plus the podcast at the time. The Hugos are people vote. So it's not, it's not like other words where it's critics deciding. So you definitely get to see, you know, what was popular not necessarily what was acclaimed, although the two sometimes coincide. So that's that's fascinating to see how science fictional fandom has changed over the years. So it's definitely it, it has changed a lot. You know what won Hugo's in the '60s versus what wins them now, or in the '80s even there was the cyberpunk craze and all that. So 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 yeah, it's it's that's that, that's an interesting project if you if you get to continue it. It feels like there was another. The Nebulas are the other Thank major you. award for 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 fiction, and th- I think that's more. The Science Fiction World Association decides those. So that's more of a critically decided. I don't know if there's, a, there might be a voting component to that as well. I used to be a member, but then there was, you no know, because I'm not going to any of the conventions. So <laughs> there's no point, but it was fascinating. But yeah, so the Hugos, the Nebulas are the two major words in science fiction and fantasy. Didn't one of them get compromised a few years ago when there were a whole bunch of weirdos that were voting for one thing that shouldn't have been voted for at all that's why democracy doesn't work doesn't that always happen it was like some sort of like weird almost like gamergate type of thing where it's just like you know oh we're all gonna vote for this person because we don't want girls to win anything or something like that i was like what like i read about like the controversy of the hugos or something i'm like there might have been a few there have been so many like two years ago george r R. martin was got in trouble because he kept complaining about the good old days, how it used to be versus how it is now. Uh, so there was that. Then the Hugos are full of scandals. And the fact that it's a popularity award definitely comes because you, you have to pay a fee to be able to vote. So there's all the people that don't pay. You have to be a member of, of the Hugos, something like that. I, I haven't, I've never done it. So the people who don't pay complain about the ones that win, the people that pay, the ones that, I don't know. It's, it's very political. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know. I've never, I've never been that slavish to the who, what wins the award and what doesn't win the award. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to culturecast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. The strange story of Pat Kramer 
It began on what seemed to be a perfectly normal day. Pat Kramer. She was a loving wife. Hi, honey. Come, nice to you. Come on, under the covers. A devoted mother. Oh, cool. <laughs> An expert homemaker. And then, one day, something incredible happened. We've got it. You are shrinking. Oh, God. No need to be upset, Mrs. Kramer. As long as you have on this ring, nothing's changed between us. I was pinched, poked, prodded. I was examined by specialists I never even knew existed. Universal Pictures presents Lily Tomlin as the incredible shrinking woman. The adventure of a brave woman whose biggest problem is growing smaller by the moment. I need a hit. <laughs> you mean she shrunk since the last time I saw her? I mean she shrunk since the last time I saw her. I almost sat on her last night. Can we give you a hand, dear? No one could help her. No one could comfort her. find her Lily Tomlin Charles Grodin in the story of a woman who gave so much Bring them killer. and got so little or champagne now how about a big hand for the little lady the incredible shrinking woman all right, we are back, and we're talking about The Incredible Shrinking Man, or in this case, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. I feel like I'm one of the few people that defends this movie. I was actually on an episode of Talk Without Rhythm podcast, uh, well, gosh, it was probably a few years ago now, where I was comparing this movie, comparing Incredible Shrinking Woman with Todd Haynes' Safe, and just this whole thing of like environmentalism, the environmental dangers of being a a housewife and just all of the chemicals that are around and the Joel Schumacher film was kind of a really logical step as to where Matheson was. And I know some people, I mean, it's campy, it's campy as hell. I never would have made that connection, but that would be a really interesting double feature. It was a good double feature. It was a great discussion. I wasn't great, but uh, El Goro was fantastic. I'll have to listen. I, I Safe is one of those movies. Every time I remember it, I'm like, that's one of my favorite movies. It's so good. I'm not sure I've seen it. Oh, you, you should. D- dig it up. It is Todd Haynes. It is Julianne Moore. One of one of kind of her first really the movie that kind of ever said, oh, oh, she's really good. It is so upsetting in such strange ways that I find myself going back to that movie a lot when different things upset me. Incredible Shrinking Woman, that was one that was on a lot when I was growing up. So I remembered images from it, but I never watched it as a kid. And it wasn't until maybe about, again, probably 10 years ago, we watched it for for my podcast. And it was just one of those, like, this movie had a lot of things behind it that got very messy. 
So I think watching it as an adult, it, to me, it's, it's very much meant kids in a way because it is that big, loud, everything else. There's adventure when it also could have just been a very interesting story about a housewife and everything that comes with that. I don't hate it. it it's trying something. And I have a feeling that's another case where I would have loved to read the first screenplay because I bet that was really, really something. The screenplay for the movie that exists is credited to Jane Wagner, who was her partner, right? Her, yeah, her partner, full time writer. Like, if you look at her writing credits, it's almost all Lily Tomlin stuff, which is amazing. I mean, it's a, such a showcase for Tomlin. She breaks out like the Judith Beasley character, the telephone operator. Just all of these other characters that we know her from, because I know that there were a lot of changes before Landis left the project and Schumacher took it over. But yeah, I would have loved to have read that earlier version of it as well. It seems like there were some more interesting things going on in here, but I did like what ended up. It probably also helps that I saw this when I was nine years old. I saw it at the theater, so... I was pretty into it, and especially, you know, know, what what feels like the John Landis touch to me is the gorilla. It feels like that is what John Landis left behind, was like, we have to have a gorilla in here, so we're going to have that. It was kind of probably your, what Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was to me. Yes, exactly, because I've never seen any of those Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Blew Up the Baby or any of those kind of things. It's been years since I've seen the sequels, but the the first one is well worth a watch. And I think there are probably a lot more nods to Shrinking Man than I've realized because I haven't rewatched I Shrunk the Kids in a while. But it's definitely a movie made with a love of sci-fi and a love of that kind of thing. I hadn't seen it before. I watched it for the first time in preparation for this episode. And I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's a very, very fun movie. It's impossible not to enjoy it right from the opening voiceover where it's extremely suggestive. There's a strong sexual connotation about... uh, presumably someone coming in someone's face. I think that's what they were, or something. Man, I need to rewatch this movie. It's been a while. Pay attention to the opening scene. It's it's black, hours the credits come in, and there's the, it's the two people advertising in front of the supermarket. But you don't see anything. And all the dialogue is extremely suggestive of something pornographic happening. And they're talking about products, but they're being vague in a way. Uh, is that good, huh, or is that good? Well, yeah. well, why don't you put the whole thing in your mouth? The whole thing? Well, at least, yes, I mean, you can't just nibble at it. You have to look like you're enjoying it. The camera it. on. The camera's on. <laughs> you're on. Okay? Oh, God, okay. Ooh, isn't that delicious, oh. huh? <laughs> just enjoy the heck out of it. I can't, I can't no. swallow it. Stop Ma'am, my teeth. <laughs> you can't grimace like that oh, because Jesus. the crackers are flying out of your mouth. That's not going to work, okay? i got to add something to drink. Okay, to take a drink and let me put some more cheese teas okay. on the cracker. Okay. And now put it in the mouth. Oh, oh I'm sorry. The, oh, man. I got some in your blouse. Don't worry it's about it. Send, me the, send me the bill. Send me the bill. The camera's running. Well, if I don't love it, I don't get to do the commercial, right? That's right. I don't love it. Well, then, but thank I, you. Have a nice day. Yeah, you know, with this stuff eating a hole in my blouse. Uh-huh. Whatever happens, I know that I'm going to enjoy this movie. And that was, I think, the tone of the movie. It was very playful. It was very funny. And I think it was the humor worked. I mean, I, even even stuff that shouldn't have, that was completely out of left field, like the, the gorilla or the chimpanzee. I don't know. If it was a gorilla, technically? I think it is a gorilla, okay. right? Yeah. Even that was very fun. And like the interactions between them and the sort of like him feeling sorry for uh, Lily Tomlin's character. Uh, the thing that I think didn't work in this movie is the message is they, they try in the first opening 20 minutes to make a statement about something and then it just like completely falls apart like the whole housewife thing like i don't think they really do a good job of showing that she's even missed as a as housewife they 
I mean, they have that um, uh, housekeeper. What's her name? Concepcion. Concepcion. Yes, that's right. And she, I mean, they're doing fine with her. They don't. They, she's not. I didn't know anybody that had a stay-at-home mom and a housekeeper. That's always one of those things that. No offense to to moms out there. Hardest job in the world. I don't ever want to do it. Do it and then be like, well, yeah, no, but I have this person that actually takes care of all the house stuff. I have less sympathy for you than I did before. So I think they go like they get so close to making a statement there, and it's, it seems like they just forget about it halfway through. And that's that's what I kind of bother me. But as a as a as a movie, it was very fun to watch. I enjoyed it the whole ninety minutes or whatever one one minute one hour and forty minutes of it. It was fun through and through. I'm glad that you enjoyed it because yeah, I have a lot of fun with this movie and some of the character actors that show up in here, like Mark Blankfield, John Glover, I mean, um, Henry Gibson, just so many good faces. And then, I mean, I fucking love Charles Grodin. Yeah. He, can be <laughs> he can do anything. Just doing whatever. And he can just give a look and it will crack me up. So yeah, I agree with you that once she does start to fade away, when she shrinks, it's like, She's kind of more of a bother than she is uh, a help. And, and the kids and the husband are just like, oh, well, you know, they just after a while, they don't seem to care anymore. And how valuable was she in this household? And I, I think this whole thing is like her not feeling valued because she's not. And, you know, really pointing out like, you guys treat me like shit. Man, that's dark. <laughs> it is. When you think, really think about that. There's a lot of line by line repetitions between the shrinking woman and the shrinking man movies. It was a lot of similar lines. Like, and I was like, wait a second, I have to compare them. And there was the doctor, the one with the doctor, it's almost word for word because the wording that they choose is so peculiar. He says, it's unprecedented. I have no explanation for this. And they exactly the same word, the same pacing, even the way they say it is exactly the same between the two. So it seems strange to me that it would stick so closely to that. But then the movie goes in completely different direction in, in other parts. I needed two full sets of pictures, spaced several days apart, to compare before I could be sure. I needed two full sets of pictures, spaced several days apart. I, I had to compare them before I, before I could be sure. I don't profess to understand it, Pat. There's no medical precedent for what appears to be happening to you. I just know you're getting smaller, these... X-rays prove it beyond any doubt. Okay. I don't profess to understand it, Mr. Carey. There's no medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. The X-rays prove it beyond any doubt. Now, I'm sending you to the Kleinman Institute for the study of unexplained phenomena. If there is any explanation for this at all, they're the ones who'll find it. I'm going to send you to the California Medical Research Institute. If there is an explanation for your phenomenon, why, well, they'll find it. Maybe that's the two different directors coming in and kind of having that kind of effect. Well, and something I do remember strongly about Drinking Woman is the the set and the color. And, you know, it's early Joel Schumacher, but... You look at the rent, you're like, oh, how did we not see it? We knew what we were always going to get from Joel Schumacher just from this movie. And it's interesting in that way, too, because Shrinking Man is obviously black and white. It's made in the 50s on a certain budget. It's going to be a black and white movie. And one of the things I thought of with Shrinking Man when I was thinking of how would you do this today? What else could you do with it? Is color would be really interesting because the end of the book of Shrinking Man 
when basically he becomes microscopic and the color is such a big part of that, right? It's him kind of walking into the world and the world looks different. The moon isn't the moon and everything is blue and just visually the idea of creating that is something that would be really neat on screen. And Shrinking Woman, I think, is just Joel Schumacher saying, I'm making kind of a cartoon movie, so I'm going to make it look like a cartoon, uh, which which I appreciate. But I think that's one thing that I could see in, if you wanted to go back to the material, what could you do? Okay, well, it's going to be a different movie when you put it in color, and that being a big part of it. Suddenly you're in the quantum verse. What does that look like? I don't know. Nobody's ever seen it. Nobody's in that small. And come back and told us. I was in a place called the quantum realm. And the quantum realm is like its own microscopic universe. To get in there, you have to be incredibly small. But I, I mean, the color does match with the movie's more humorous tone. I thought. I mean, I thought that looked pretty. Uh, it was a pretty good choice. I think the the scene with the trash compactor or the garbage. Oh, boy, yeah. I mean, garbage I think disposal. That, is, that garbage was disposal. scary shit when I was a kid. One more reason to never have a garbage disposal. Every Any horror fan knows that. Never have a garbage disposal. Never touch it. In terms of the tension, I thought that was worthy of the original because that's how the original is. I thought that was a very well done scene. But also in terms of a, so it's at a symbolic level, it's a kitchen utensil that ends up almost killing her Ironically, by Concepcion, who is is kind of being caught caught into the fame like everyone else has. It's kind of it's kind of funny how everybody is more a lot more open about sort of exploiting her fame in that '80s version versus the '50s version. Which I think also it's another good way to kind of take some of the struggles that people would have faced in the '50s and transpose them into something that is more '80s like, like this sort of hunger for fame, which is probably or you know, maybe even today would be even more appropriate how everybody's a YouTuber or a, a podcast podcaster. Or the Incredible Shrinking Podcaster. Yeah, yeah. Or a Twitch streamer. <laughs> incredible yeah, Shrinking Influencer. That was, yeah, and I think the, that was probably an, a, something, something that the 80s, the people in the 80s would have appreciated. I mentioned before how Matheson is kind of similar to Scott and just that I forgot that aspect of Scott at one point, he's just like, I'm going to write my story. And he sells his book and, you know, sells his book like that, which is fantastic that he's that great of a writer and that he ends up selling like right away and then leaves that as like the nest egg for the wife. He's able to and daughter in this one. So he's just like, Oh, I was finally able to give them something because of this, as opposed to now, you know, if we, did the incredible shrinking man he'd be in the news cycle for yeah, maybe a week week and a half okay, kind of then thing. people would say it's fake right it's photoshop right. or just whatever they want to do and they move on to the next thing well that's something too i love about i think sci- good sci-fi stories there's a reason why you get a great or near great or maybe it could have been better body snatchers movie every 20 years because it's a simple story that works in any era, but tells a different story in any era, right? In the 50s, it's doing one thing about suburban life or communism, depending on your read on it. In the 70s, it's about kind of urban decay and all of that. In the 90s, they they can tell the same story, but it's all about the military. And again, it's why it's shocking that we don't just have a shrinking man every 10 years, because a shrinking man in the 50s was different from a shrinking, in that case, woman. But to John's point about, right, well, the commercialism aspect being so different, because in the 80s, they would have been clamoring for it. Well, then in the 90s, would it have been like, I don't know, disassociated, not cool to the 2000s, where it's post 9-11? Who knows what happens? Like, 
a good concept, which I always think of, to me, good sci-fi is, and, and again, I'm not as well-versed in, in all the art of sci-fi, but to me, when I think of great sci-fi, I think of you take the real, you take the world you know, and you take one aspect of it, and you twist it, and you change it. And by doing that, you've revealed something completely different about the society you're in or the world at large. And this is such a simple concept that retell it every couple of places and different groups of people and different times, and you will illuminate different things. Yeah, I mean, that's what science fiction do- does best: takes complicated problem and presents them in a almost literal way, like a person shrinking, or or people close. I don't know. Any- I mean, if, if the 50s versions, either the novel or the book, we call them unsubtle, the 80s is unsubtle on a completely different level because she literally gets sprayed with products and labels and her husband is an advertising executive or is it is it just advertising or does he work for a company that makes the products? He's in the advertising side of it, isn't he? Marketing. He mar- names them or something. Yeah, that was, I thought that was brilliant. And also the, the evil cor- like organizations called the Organization for World Management – or something like that. And then the guy says, like explicitly says, this will destroy American consumerism. Like he doesn't, they don't even hide it under something else. It's, they say it right out. This is about consumerism. We like it. We don't want to, we don't want to get rid of it. And she's and sprayed with bottles in the beginning. And when they finally find it, they, there's that long table of products that neither one of them would do this, but all of them in the right combination caused her to shrink. Whereas in the original were two things, the combination the unlikely combination of two things is the unlikely combination of hundreds of things that just happen. Excess and excess exactly, and excess. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's as unsubtle as it is. It is very brilliant in its own way. Yeah. I, I really like that movie. I think people sell it a little too short because it is ha ha ha, but it's so it's cheesy as fuck, but it really has some fun things to it. And we haven't even mentioned the galaxy glue song. I mean, no, now I'm going to be singing it forever. Every time, every oh, time. Yeah, yeah. It's never That's leaving the head ends, now. Right? Is that uh, the, the, the end? Oh, like an extended yep. credit sequence with it, right? Yeah, the lyrics are actually really funny. <laughs> Memory serves. When Emily said about uh, science fiction telling the problems of today, watching all these movies almost made me wish that the largest problem that we faced was still nuclear annihilation. Because that, that, that's, I mean, for all the terrifying aspects about it, that's a very tangible problem. All you have to do is make sure nobody flips the switch. That's all you have to do. That could be harder than we think it is. Yeah, it is. It is. It is not easy. You have to keep, again, men with high testosterone, you have to keep them in check. But but compared to the problems that we, how do you even like, they're so intangible, the problems that we have today, misinformation, the decline of democracy, climate change, half of people don't even believe in it. So that just some nuclear annihilation, we had it good back then. Well, not we, because I wasn't around, but people had it good. That was, you, we, you could keep that under control. But then everything fell apart once other, once we got rid of that. And then we, we started realizing the climate is changing or the people don't believe in things. Well, anymore. I mean, that's uh, why, why, like, you want kids to be afraid of monsters because, okay, let's deal with that. Like, yeah, be, be afraid of the monster under your bed. It's not real. It's not there. But, like, yeah, be, be afraid of that. Don't, don't think about the fact that the world's going to be destroyed before you turn 40. Don't, don't think about those things. So, and, and nuclear annihilation was that, yeah. The good old days of hiding under desks, if only. Simple, right? That was the solution to everything. Duck and cover it. The Russians look, are evil. We're that. good. Oh, That's yeah. all you need. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I got one. I got one. I got a spaceship. They're coming. They're going to enter our atmosphere. When they're mixed with territorial 
What's its extraterrestrial being? Yeah, when yeah. when they when they come, they'll probably come in secret, won't they? Undoubtedly. land right and and only a few of us will know all, all about it i expect oh yeah well obviously yeah. well see they'll have a very advanced spacecraft obviously uh, have all the bits on it all the, uh, all the anti-gravitational anti pull bits mm. so it can come down very softly yeah. you know like sort of and then all the door goes right Oh my God. Obviously the whole world will benefit from their advanced technology. Because I mean, I mean, they want to meet some of the great minds from our planet. What all the brainy people like. I come in peace. Will you speak with me? Yep, no, I understand. Uh, you have come to our planet from another planet? No, we come from our own planet. Not another one. And um, will they be, uh, you know, sort of well, intelligent, I suppose? Well, this is the thing, you see. They'll have to be intelligent, won't they? I mean, we've come here in the first place. Yeah. They've started playing with the chess set. Oh, this is a development. No, it isn't. I'll tell you something. Yeah. It's going to change the fabric of society as we know it in many subtle and mysterious ways. Your time has come, you smug... The aliens are here! We're all going to die! <laughs> Um, and of course they'll be greeted with and treated with kid gloves. Ah! Come on, <coughs> show us your tentacles. They'll be like gods, won't they? They will come down, as you say, Derek, like gods. Looking forward to them coming then. Terrified. Be nice though, when they come, meet new people. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at the cinematic classic Morons from Outer Space. Until then, I want to thank this week's co hosts, Emily and John. So, Emily, what have you been up to lately? The usual, which means two things of creative note. One is I still run a horror blog, if they still call it that. I feel like it's supposed to be probably some other term for it. But I write about movies, usually horror movies, over at DeadlyDollsHouse.com. And then I do a podcast with the wonderful Christine Nickpiece, who's been on the show quite a few times. Uh, it's The Feminine Critique. We talk about movies with no real rhyme or reason. Our most recent episode is out there, and that was our 150th episode. So we hit a milestone. Real it as we were recording of, oh, hey, we did something good. And that episode was Mary Riley from 1996 and uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1994, which turned into quite an interesting double feature. 
Yeah. Lots of disagreements on it. Mary Riley. You have to, you, I forgot. I'm, I need to take a drink because you're only supposed to whisper Mary Riley. Don't you have yeah. to say it twice, too? Mary Riley. Always Mary Riley. Yes. And John, what's been happening with you, sir? Also the usual. I'm still writing reviews of Asian cinema at vcinemashow.com. And uh, I'm also, I have a podcast about Asian cinema, Heroic Purgatory blogspot.com I think yeah I think that's the website uh, but you can check it out there listen to us we don't we don't publish as frequently usually every two or three weeks but there's uh, we do try to cover movies that people don't usually talk about and this week or next week we'll be talking about the New York Asian Film Festival they did online for the past couple of years but this year you'd have to go to New York to watch it but it's they usually have pretty decent selection there it's one of the better Asian cinema festivals in the uh in the u.s so if you're interested in that or asian cinema check us out at heroic purgatory well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks everybody for listening if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth check out the other shows that i'm on like the shabby detective dreams for sale the life and times of captain barney miller ranking on bass they are available where all finer podcasts are found thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world
Galaxy Glue 